0: Well, open your Bibles this morning, the book of Job, chapter 18. I'm so thankful that it's not even supposed to hit 80 degrees today. But it is hard to preach Job on a dreary day. (laughs) It's like, ugh, Um, it already feels dark outside that way. I will say this, that the chapters we're going to look at this morning, Job 18 and 19, Um, have one of the most profound verses of hope in all of the Bible, um, and even specifically in the book of Job. And it's just a glorious moment in Job. And so 18 and 19, we're going to be able to take them together this morning because they mirror each other so well. And I think just organizationally, it's easy to kind of wrap our minds around. Hopefully the Prezi will help for you visual thinkers like I am uh, to factor through that. I will say this: Bill Dad is the next guy to speak, and, and I made a decision this week. I'm not a hobby farm kind of guy. I'm not even a pet kind of guy. We've got one fish in our house, and we're happy with that. And um, that's that's like the that's the epitome of Steve Petland. I don't hate dogs and cats. okay, cats. That okay, yeah, I do struggle with hating cats, but dogs, dogs. Um, but I would never harm one. I'm not I'm not on mission that way, right? But we're not. In it. But I have discovered this this week. I made a decision. If I ever own goats, one of them's getting named Bill Dad. Just And it's going to be the most stubborn, obnoxious one. Bildad's the second of Job's frenemies that speaks. And um, the things he says this morning are just unbelievable uh, when you consider who Job is and what he's going through. Uh, We'll read through the text together as we work our way through the sermon this morning. Uh, But maybe just as our key takeaway this morning, hell on earth fixes the eyes of the righteous on their living God. One of my favorite uh, book series and then movie series is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I, it's, it's one of those few, I violated my own rules and I saw the movies before I read the books. Um, but, but even when you read the books, they're, they're powerful, the moving. But one of the climactic scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy happens in the second movie. Rohan, as a nation, is beaten back and they have retreated into what is known as Helm's Deep. Uh, and this becomes known as the Battle of Helm's Deep. They are overwhelmed by these orcs, these half-dead creatures from the pits of the earth raised by an evil wizard. Uh, there's quite a bit of imagery in, uh, in the writing of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, that points to biblical imagery. Uh, it was not intended specifically as an allegory, the way C.S. Lewis is writing, war, but he borrowed lots and lots of themes. There comes this moment when they've been in battle for days and they have, they've been beaten back into the deepest recesses of Helm's Deep and now the orcs are battering down the doors. They're, they're going to die. Women and children have been tried to be sheltered away, but they're, they're all going to be slaughtered. And they come to this moment as the evil forces of Sauron are outside with only a few remaining soldiers, no hope for victory, that's that's long since been dead, they decide that they're going to ride out one last time. They're going to open the doors and ride out in the last charge, frankly dying in glory, uh, trying to kill as many of these enemies as possible, and then giving a little bit more time to the women and children to try to escape. And so... As they begin riding out the doors and they're riding into this unbelievable mass of orcs, they suddenly remember a promise that Gandalf the white wizard had made to them. And he had said to them, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And it's this massive moment of swelling music as they look to the east and light is, it's blinding light and there is this figure, white figure on a white horse with a delivering army that rides down in and just destroys Saruman's army, delivering them, killing the foul enemy and bringing ultimate deliverance. It's the kind of deliverance that anyone in such a desperate moment would long for. I read an article this week of a lady um, that her husband and she were on a trip and uh, they were in Egypt, I think they were actually on the Nile, uh, and he got a weird infection, a bacterial infection, and he was dying. And this bacterial infection was resistant. It was like a superbug. It was resistant to every kind of antibiotic. The guy's dying. And they actually, what he had was something that our soldiers had come to be called a instead of bacteria. Because it, it is actually a bacteria that breeds in the sands of the deserts of the Middle East. And when they would be uh, attacked or wounded by an IED the sand would blow into the wound. It would create this bacterial infection It was resistant. And more soldiers were dying from the racketeria than they were from the wounds from the IED blast. That's what this lady's husband had. And yet she's a scientist. And so she, she starts researching and trying to figure out what, what can help. And uh, through lots of research, incredible persistence, uh, even getting the Navy involved, the FDA quickly approved this regiment where they found these other pathogens that they cleansed, and they literally injected straight into his sores. This man was in a coma. He was on death's door. Ventilator was going to die, and in three days woke up and kissed his daughter on the cheek. That's the kind of deliverance we hope for, isn't it? When we are in desperate straits, when, when we are in hell on earth, we want someone somehow to rescue us. We cannot, we've come to the end of ourselves. We have no more strength. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot do ourselves. We need help. The two chapters we're going to look at this morning as Job's friends continue to address him. Chapter 18 is Bildad's poem. And his perspective is, Job, you're in hell on earth because God's preparing you for eternal hell. Isn't that a blessed medicine? Oh, that's that's like a balm, isn't it? Your suffering is only going to get worse. He offers no hope of repentance. He doesn't even offer hope of confession. All that is gone from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're ticked at Job. They're annoyed with Job. They roll their eyes at Job, and so they're in full on condemnation mode. And it's like it's like a set I used to, when I was a little kid I used to watch uh, this will date me like uh, Hulk Hogan, right? And they you know. The old professional wrestlers, this is like tag team, man. And, and the shtick was always the tag team. They'd have one guy beating the guy up. And when he got exhausted beating on him, he tagged his friend so his friend could beat on him. That's what it feels with these guys. It's relentless. And so Bill Dad's perspective is hell on earth for Job should make you think about the eternal hell you're headed towards. Job's theme is just as simple in chapter 19. Job actually agrees. I'm in hell on earth. A number of years ago, uh, I was talking to someone about a trial and I... I made the expression, I said, yeah, it's like living through hell on earth. And they got all kinds of offended. I'll be honest with you, at the time I thought they were a little crazy for being offended. Because it was a horrible nightmare. And if you've been through horrible nightmare suffering, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You you can't think of other words to describe it. I feel even less guilty now with Job. Because Job 19 is basically saying, you're right, this is hell on earth. But this makes me look beyond earth. And have hope. And so, Bildad's argument is that Job's complaints about his suffering prove that he's under God's wrath. Job says that's not the way this is going down. And so, we're going to dive right in then this morning and try to understand this perspective and see what's happening. Let's start right here in chapter 18 with the first few verses because I want you to see some of Bildad's anger and his resentment and what's driving what he's saying. What's driving what he's saying is not love right it's it's not affection it's not tenderness then bildad the shuhite answered and said how long will you hunt for words consider and then we will speak in other words you need to stop talking and you start listening why are we counted as cattle why are we stupid in your sight he's actually referencing back to something job had said in chapter 12 verse 7 where job said this but ask the beasts they will teach you the birds of the heavens they will tell you and so bildad's been stewing on this one here for a couple chapters Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock removed out of its place. What he's describing is the world, we have the system. And that's what all of the friends are arguing. The system. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. You've done, you're getting really bad. You must have done really bad. And so he's saying, would you upend the entire system? Can you move rocks out of their place? Shall the whole earth be overturned? Could the household of God Be upended because of your words, Job. And so that's what he says. Well, if you go over to chapter 19, first six verses, you kind of see Job's response to that first interaction from Bildad. Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Bildad says, You need to stop talking and listen. Job says, But every time you talk, all you do is hurt me more. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Just pause there. We don't know if that means that we only have some of the speeches recorded. Um, surely we only have some of them we can tell by the rest of the text uh, of Job that this trial goes on for months and months and months Um, or it could be Job's just using poetic hyperbole that it feels like 10 times we're not sure these 10 times you've cast reproach on me are you not ashamed to wrong me and even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify, magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Essentially, what he's saying is your words are making my life worse. You know, I think that that's some of what happens when we're dealing with somebody that's suffering. And I'm not excusing us here. We've all been here, though. And we're afraid to talk to them. Because we don't know what to say, and we're afraid we're going to make it worse. You ever been there? Um, It's like funeral greeting lines are like a terrifying moment, both for the people that are in them and the people that go through them. You don't know what to say, you don't want to make it worse, you're afraid. And we know that we need to push through that and simply speak in love and compassion. And so I'm not giving us an out. I'm just owning that reality of our heart bent. But what Job's saying is when you are talking, all you're doing is to make it worse. When we are bad counselors for the suffering, we make their suffering about us, which is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar do. They take all of Job's pain and like, somehow they make his hurt about them. About how it makes their life hard about how it makes their life difficult, about how somehow Eliphaz says you're destroying worship and Bildad here says you're destroying the system. Like Somehow Job's loss of his ten kids, his wife, his health, his wealth, everything, his respect, somehow becomes their problem. I think we do that when, when we resent people's complaints, confusion, and questions. They're hurting and we get irritated by their questioning. We get irritated by their neediness. We roll our eyes mentally or physically at how they don't seem to get how they've made their life so bad. It'd be like if we looked at Job who's struggling clearly with depression, discouragement, and we were to say, well, Job, look, you can't get your kids back. You can't get your wife back. This seems to be your health condition. Look, brother, you just need to get up and get moving. I got to get back to my stuff. You need to do your business. And there can be an unkindness to people. From the outside, they're judging Job and they actually think Job deserves this suffering. There's no way someone could be going through something this bad and it's not their fault. That's their thinking. You're hurting that bad? You must have done something wrong. I don't know anything about the world. I don't know everything about your situation. Clearly, you messed up. And yet Job, the book of Job has been so clear to us that that is not the case. And you and I will encounter suffering in our lives and you and I will encounter sufferers that, have, that do not deserve what they're going through. That fact alone must give us pause as we minister to people that are hurting. And from the inside, uh, Bildad is looking from the outside, looking at somebody going through hell on earth. From the inside of a hell on earth experience, the sufferer's grief is compounded by this lack of compassion, and so then what Bildad does is he gives an amazing poem about what hell is like. How does Bildad get there? It, there's clear that there has been some theological information download to Bildad, Job, and the other Job and the others to humanity, other than what we necessarily have specifically recorded for us in Scripture. That, that seems obvious, but additionally, Bildad is is actually reading. What would God's wrath look like? And he's basing it on what Job is saying. And and so you could actually preach a sermon about hell, calling to people to repent from their sin based on Bildad's poem. The problem is who Bildad's applying it to. And Bildad's applying it to a believer. And the believer doesn't live under threat of hell. Every one of us is born under the threat of hell. That's just the reality. We're born as sinners. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone in this room is a sinner. You're, you were created, you sin not to become a sinner, you sin because you already are a sinner. It's in your nature. And the wages of sin is death. And the consequences, the judgment of God is hell for that. And so this is what Bildad's going to describe, and we're actually going to go through the poem, and you'll see how Job interacts. And the first thing Bildad goes after is the darkness of hell, and he does it in verses 5 and 6. He says, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Everything he's going to describe here is completely accurate, and what he's keying in on here right now in this moment is the darkness of hell. And, and, and everything he's referencing, if you were to go back and study previously in Job, you'd see Job reference it. Way back in chapters 10, chapter 10 verses 20 through 21 and 22, Job talked about how dark it was and how, how bleak it was and how there was no light. Jesus describes hell this way. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west, recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How does Job see it from the inside out? If you look over in chapter 19, verse 8, he says this way, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. In eternal hell, there is absolute darkness. One of the torments that God poured out on the children of Israel or upon the land of Egypt to let the nation of Israel go was darkness. It's terrifying. As a kid, I was scared of the dark. I wanted a light. The the house we moved from when I was about halfway through first grade, all our toys were in the basement. My dad's tools were down there get a train set down there, always want to go down to the basement and play. Um, but, but some sadist put the light switch for the lights for the basement at the bottom of the stairs. Like I, I don't know who designed that house, but that thing needed to be fixed, which is ironic because my dad was an electrician, so it would have been no big deal. But the darkness didn't bother him that way. And so then to make it worse, worse it was that he got in there through the kitchen Um, The kitchen door, you could turn the kitchen light on and leave the kitchen door open. It was one of those doors that would swing shut on its own. And it creaked. So here you got five-year-old Steve halfway down the stairs as there goes a... And you're plunged into total darkness. On top of that, it was those creepy wooden stairs where there was no back to them. And at some point, at some point, one of my less-than-loving cousins as I had walked down the stairs one time, had reached through and grabbed my ankle. So put all that together, and you got high-stepping little Steve racing down the stairs, trying to get to the switch, right? I was terrified of the darkness. Darkness is terrifying. You plunge people into darkness, and Bildad says that hell is dark, and Jesus says hell is dark, and Job says I'm in that darkness right now. When you're going through hell on earth, there is no light of hope, right? There, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there's no light of clarity. What do I do? Where do I step next? I don't know. I'm so overwhelmed by grief and suffering. I don't know what to do, I don't know where to go, and it feels so dark. There's no light of direction. Yeah, I, I don't even understand this phrase, but the, the darkest of night is right before dawn. When you're in the middle of grief and, you, and people quote to you the Bible and say weeping endures for a night, and the problem is when you're in this level of grief, you can't even imagine dawn coming again. It's dark. Make no mistake about it, Job is saying I am like in hell here. Bildad says, you're right, and that's what everything's going to be like for you. Job is agreeing. That's what I'm experiencing right now. It's not just the darkness, though. There's a trap nature of it in verses 7 and 10 of chapter 18. Look at how Bildad describes this. His strong steps are shortened. His own schemes throw him down. In other words, and that's not hard to figure out, right? Poetically, that's your fault, right? Right? For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden from him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. (laughs) Um, While we are not a camping and outdoors family, we are fascinated by those that are. And I don't mean that like you go to the zoo and look at an animal. I mean that like, These people are smart like we're stupid and they love what we don't understand. They are fascinating to me. And there's this show out there called Alone. Have you ever seen this show before, Alone? These people are sick in the head. They drop in the middle of the the season last year was called Grizzly Mountain. Are you kidding? And they're out there with bears and black bears and grizzly bears. And the very first episode, this one guy looks up and like 30 yards away there's a mountain lion stalking him it's crazy how are they going to live one of the ways they live is they try to snare animals i'm like that just you know so the one lady she snares this bunny rabbit it's a bunny right but she's starving and it's cold and, and when she goes to get out of the snare it's like frozen so she and it's like bunny pancake it's like nothing it's just flat And I'm like, man. And so things like that make me study things. that I I love obscure trivia. Do you know that snaring as a way of hunting is banned in most of the states? Because most animals will chew their own leg off to get out of a snare. It's considered inhumane. Now, I'm not, be clear, I'm not judging these people. I'm just saying when you are that caught, you desperate to get out and he's describing hell as a place where there's no escape and it's your own fault you wandered into the net of it yourself you blundered into it and back in chapter 13 verse 27 job had described feeling trapped like a man in chains in prison in chapter 10 verse 16 he described himself feeling like he was like a hunted animal and Bildad has picked up on that language. It rightly depicts the inescapable prison that is hell. But it also highlights, get this now, the unexpected nature of it. Unexpected, yeah. You don't, if you know that a snare's there, you don't snap in it. If you know that a net's there, you don't jump on it. But it seems to capture you. How could that be? How could hell be so unexpected? Because God knows the hour of your passing, but you don't. And everyone who is lost is on their way to an eternal hell. Everyone in this room has lived long enough to have seen or heard of God taking people very, very, very young. And in great health. Unexpectedly, a car wreck, a medical event. I was talking to my, one of my brothers this week and in their church, tragic, tragically, tragically, tragically two weeks ago a 48 year old mom of two dropped dead one month ago her oldest daughter or excuse me her youngest daughter got married and yesterday was supposed to be the gender reveal for her other daughter of their first child and this lady loved jesus otherwise good health they have no idea gone life is a vapor none of us know when and there's an unexpected nature to this, and, and Job references it as well. If you go over to nineteen verses six through seven, he says, "Know then that God has put me in the wrong. He closed his net around me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice." The description there poetically is like someone getting mugged. It's unexpected. You you go out. Look, if you if you're in New York City. First of all, there's places you don't go, and there's streets you don't walk down, and there's times a day you don't find yourself in neighborhoods you don't know. That's what it is. And frankly, it's every city on the planet. But if you're in a pizza joint, and you look outside the doors, and it's pitch black, and the light on the corner's turned out, and there's a guy standing there wearing all black and a mask, and he's just standing there eye, mean mugging you, you're an idiot if you walk out. You're going to get mugged. You walk up by an alleyway and you see a group of guys down there, all of them smoking a joint. That's not the moment to walk down and say, hey, fellas, can you give me directions to Times Square? You're going to get mugged. That's not how muggers work, right? They catch you unawares. What Job is saying, the hell on earth of my trials was completely unpredictable. And if you've experienced deep suffering and grief, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It actually leaves you with a little bit of PTSD. You get a phone call at 3 in the morning and they tell you so and so has passed or this has happened. I guarantee you, every time your phone rings in the middle of the night for the rest of your life, your heart rate's gonna go up. Every time. You get a bad text, you get a bad email, you start to get the jitters when you feel your phone buzz in your pocket. You experience trauma in a specific location. Maybe you go to an intersection and you had a horrific car wreck there. I guarantee you every time you go through that intersection, you're going to feel a sense of it. The unexpected nature of intense trauma and and hardship and pain changes us. And what Job is saying is, my hell on earth here, remember it all happened in one, can you even wrap your mind around that, the one day event? All of your, your crops and your animals, they've been stolen and your servants have been slaughtered. All your kids have been killed. And by that night or the next day, boils are happening. Like, it is difficult to imagine the immediacy of it. I just call to us to remind us, oh saint, that is here this morning, every lost person you know is living under the constant threat of God's wrath in hell that can happen in a moment. And so it is this prison, and, and it should produce fear. Jesus put it this way, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It is, once you're there, it is inescapable. But then there's the physical suffering of it. Job has frequently talked about the physical suffering he's experiencing. One of the most telling happens in Job 7. I'll, I'll read it to you, Job 7, 4, and 5. He says, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. In other words, while he's awake during the day, he just wishes he could sleep. When he tries to go to sleep, he has nightmares and just wishes he could be awake. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. Even when it feels like these boils and sores are healing, they just break out more. He he can't. It's just constant physical torment. Bildad seizes upon that in verses eleven through fourteen of chapter eighteen. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. The picture that he has there is Job, you feel like you're dying, but the moment of your death is going to come. And when it comes, you're going to be snatched and you're going to be marched. And, and he almost has this Dante's Inferno kind of picture of hell in his mind where like Satan sits on some kind of throne and I'm going to bring you to the king of terrors who's going to judge you and then just punish you more. Now we know biblically that's not an accurate portrayal. We do know that the lost will be marched to God. And I will say this, he will be a terrifying judge on that day to them. It's amazing the callousness that he has here. Job references the terror of his physical suffering. If you fast forward in chapter 19, verses down 20 through 22, he says, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. It means he's so gaunt, he's starving. He looks like a skeleton. Have you ever seen the photos of the folks that they rescued from the Holocaust camps? They look like death walking, don't they? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, oh you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? It's the cry of the grieving and the sorrowing, and they are saying the hits just keep, keep on coming. When is it enough? When is there enough torture? Jesus makes it very clear, the physical suffering of hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into the hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, some of you are really, really observant, and you notice there that 40, verses 44 and 46 are missing. I'll tell you why they're missing. When they translated the King James originally, they took that verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and they inserted it behind each one of those, trying to emphasize the dangers. But the best text we have, it only happens once there, and it's in verse 48. So just if you've ever been raised in an environment that says, see, they take verses out of the Bible, it's a misunderstanding of the way interpretation and translation works. It's there. It just occurs once. They're trying to bring the emphasis out. Both good intentions. This is what we got. The point is this, the worm dies not, the fire is not quenched. What is the worm there? We're not really sure. Could it be a physical kind of worm or maggot that's eating away at you? Sure. Could it also be the gnawing away at your conscience, which is another way this phrase is used? Sure. What we know with the point that Jesus is making is one would be temporary, temporary, incredibly painful and difficult hardship on earth, loss of an eye, loss of a hand, And that that pales in comparison to the eternal torment that you experience in hell. That's his emphasis. There is physical suffering there. I'm not going to go into, you know, so many times over the years, different pastors have tried to uh, extrapolate and expand. I'm I'm not going to go there. I think Jesus' words here are really helpful because it's difficult for me to imagine willfully choosing to chop off my right hand for the rest of my life. And he's saying, but that hardship, that pain, that agony, that hardship, that difficulty is far better than hell. That's how Jesus, is, it's, it's very clear, he understands we can't wrap our mind around how horrible it is. And so Bildad has said it's horrible, Job has said it's horrible, and they actually even get down to the fires of hell. If you go back to chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, Bildad says something fascinating says in his tent dwells that which is none of his sulfur is scattered over his habitation fire flame his roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above he holds nothing back here by referencing really fire and brimstone we typically think of that with hell and its torments we think of that uh with with the twin cities that God rains down fire and brimstone upon them Sodom and Gomorrah to wipe them off the planet Um, Jesus will talk about the fires and the flames of hell. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's an idea that Eliphaz first introduced in his speech. And he says something interesting there. I just want you to think through the poetry of this. What kind of fire or where would the fire come from, verse 16, for it to start with your roots and end with your branches? Not even the base of the tree, the roots. Where would the fire have to start to come from the roots to go to the branches? From the very nether regions of the earth. Bildad is saying the fires of hell is what's going to consume you. Not some firestorm from above, not even lightning strike. This is wrath of God rising up to consume you. And Bildad has built to the worst aspect of hell. And it's the the aspect that Job himself has referenced a number of times. And so if we come back to Bildad, chapter 18, verses 17 through 20, he's now talking about what's going to happen when you die, Job. What happens to someone who has gone into this kind of hell? His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people means he has no respect. There's no children behind him. No survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. And then in the, the last climactic moment, who is it that goes there? Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of them who knows not God. Jesus makes it very clear that hell is a place where you are cast out. But this is how Job talks about it. And it's interesting for each one of these with Job and Bildad, Job has responded a little bit. The only one he doesn't specifically respond to right now is the fires of hell. He's talked about that earlier. But he takes a long time to talk about the aloneness here. He says, he has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in the eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me and those whom I loved have turned against me. There's so many categories there. There's family rejection from siblings to distant relatives. There's close friends rejection. There's a the rejection of guests and former friends who were in his home. There were, there's the rejection of former servants and co-workers. His own wife rejects him. And, and he capitalizes on neighbor children, which is interesting. And what his picture is, is he's sitting there, covered in his boils, suffering. Everybody who knew him, it's like little kids come by mocking him and throwing rocks at him. In Job's suffering and his grief, part of the way his aloneness has been so exaggerated is that people he thought loved him have abandoned him. They don't want to get anywhere near him. It's kind of like... um, a joke when we were we were growing up. He'd say something, do something stupid, lie, I, sin in some way, and uh, every once in a while, my dad would be like, "Y'all better back up, so you don't want to get hit by the sparks from the lightning." He's <laughs> saying like God's gonna bring judgment. You don't want to be anywhere near the person getting judged, right? It's like when you're a kid and you and your your sibling did something bad. And you learn pretty quickly as a kid, if they are the focus of the anger, you don't you just kind of fade to the background. You don't want any part of this, right? And and that's some of it. They think Job's wicked and they don't want to be any part of his suffering. Man, if if you're suffering and I get close to you, maybe maybe some of your suffering if if I get close to your hell on earth, maybe some of your hell on earth will rub against me. You know what a great way is to feel to to not suffer? Now, every one of you are going to suffer at some point, but don't ever enter into anyone else's suffering either, because the moment you enter into their suffering, you take on some of their burdens. And you know what? Most people in this world go through life, and I'd just rather not know how, how hard life is for you. Even though the Bible is really, really clear that that's not how we should respond to one another, and whether it's we're called to rejoice with the rejoicing or weep with the weeping, or it's an expression from 1 John of what it means to really love your neighbor, We are called consistently to enter into the world of the sufferer with compassion and love and patience and tenderness, with grace for their needs. And Job has had none of it. This guy who helped strangers, this guy who helped orphans, this guy who helped widows, this, who, this guy who used his servants to deliver those that were being judged wrongly, this guy who would confront unjust judges. That's the, who Job was. This guy who would go and he would provide medical care for people he didn't even know to try to help. Nobody has time for him. Hell on earth is aloneness. Bildad knows it. Job is living it. Any one of us, any one of us can play a role in the feelings of isolation that someone else is going through. I just want to remind you, the, the warning from chapter 18 is don't be Bildad. And I want to point out that his friends were present. So what does Job mean when he says, my close friends have forgotten me? All my intimate friends abhor me. Your presence is not enough because you can be present but magnifying their pain. I think you magnify pain by silence. I think you magnify pain by blame. I think you magnify pain by pretending it's not that bad. I think you magnify pain by condemning. I think you magnify pain by giving Tylenol for cancer. In other words, wrong medicine for the hurt that's going on. We long for support for our weak hearts and our hands. We need truth speakers for our damaged hearts and confused minds when we're in deep grief. All too often, people get silence, withdrawal, and condemnation. Job is living through hell on earth, and it is all alone. I don't know about you, but as I've studied Job, it's one of those moments, you know, like you'll sometimes party questions, that you'll be asked, hey, if there's any place, time, any point in time you could go back to or anything you could do, what would you do? There's a heart of me as I'm studying Job. I just wish I could go with Job and say, Hey, hey, I'm going to make you some chicken broth. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. It's going to be okay. He doesn't hate you. Because Job feels hated by God. May God develop in us a heart of compassion. Hell on earth fixes the eyes of the righteous on their living God. And so, Job, we now get to finish with Job chapter 19. Because Job basically says, Look up. <laughs> Without question, hell is terrifying, but it is not for saved people. Bildad is right in his description, but wrong in his application. If you are here today, oh, hear me, and you have not turned from your sin. Everything he described is where you're headed. I plead with you run into the loving arms of Jesus who says, I will save you. Turn from your sin, put your faith in Him, and follow Him and be rescued. But this is not who Job is. Job is a believer. Job has not earned this suffering. In verse 4, if you go back to verse 4, he says something unusual there, but I want to point it out. He says, even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with himself. And the word he uses there is an intentional Hebrew choice and it means a very, very, very light thing. A very simple thing. And Job is saying is, I'm not saying I'm not a sinner. <laughs> and if I've sinned, then the sin is right in here. I don't even know what it is. But it doesn't deserve this and i want to say to your heart and my heart again so many times when we are going through extreme suffering physical, emotional relational financially many many people maybe you're like me and if you're not like me and you don't understand this just hit pause button then and just understand lots of people are like me this way i am prone and tempted to start thinking through all the sins i've ever done and have i asked god to forgive me because i'm terrified to think that this hell on earth has been earned And if I just ask forgiveness, he'll take it away. And so what Job is saying is I've examined. And if I've erred, it's not. It shouldn't have been the death of ten kids. And it shouldn't have been my wife abandoning me. And it shouldn't have been boils all over my skin. And it shouldn't have been the loss of respect and wealth and standing. And he's right. Because God said it's not fair what he's experiencing. Job is not wrong in that complaint. But this is so critically important hear me now for you and I to have a clear conscience. We will not go through this world sinless. Only one ever did. His name was Jesus and you ain't him. And I for sure am not. We will sin. You confess your sin. You repent of your sin. You trust God for forgiveness. He says he grants it freely. You move on in life. But there is a power and a clear conscience for Job. Job knows he hasn't earned this. Paul picks up on the same kind of idea in 1 Corinthians 4. For 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. through He said, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Now here's what's so hard. That sounds so intensely arrogant to us. When we are like Job's friends. Because it sounded arrogant to them too. Paul has examined his life by the word. And he says, I am not guilty of what the Corinthians are accusing me of. In fact, he says though, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Why? Because Paul knows what we all know. You can be blind to your own blindness. But it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. The wicked are wrecked when they give up their faith and a clear conscience. Job is not saying that he is sinless, but that this hell on earth is not earned or deserved. He should not be under God's wrath. What we know that Job doesn't is that the suffering isn't God's wrath at all. We know that it is the hand of Satan against him to destroy him. And we know, actually, get this now, God is working with Job to prove what Job would also care about. And what is that? That God loves me when I don't deserve it, and I love him because he's fully deserving of it. He doesn't love me because he is some insecure manipulative God, but he loves me out of his own grace, and I don't love him for what it gets for me. I love him for who he is. Job wants that proven. He would want it proven because he follows God. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, guess what you would want proven too? That God is worthy of love, no matter if your life never looks like you won the lottery, no matter if it looks like you can run every marathon, no matter if you have every child, every marriage, every friendship that you would desire in all the respect of the people. We don't follow Jesus for what it gets us. We follow him for who he is. And God says that is worth being proven. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let Satan do this so that Job and I can prove the truth, the validity, and the value of the love between God and his people. That's what he's on, and Job doesn't know it. Oh, our dear brother does not know it, and I'm going to put it further. We have the book of Job thousands of little years later, and when I am in deep grief, I don't feel any different than him. What have I done to make you so mad at me, God? You ever been there? Oh, brother or sister, be set free from the self-condemnation. And one of the ways, and one of the steps towards that is to have a clear conscience. And so what do we do then in the midst of this puzzling pain? Well, I love it because Job goes on rebuke mission. I'm like, right on, brother. Lay these fellas out. You know, and so he does it and we're going to break it into two parts. If you look in chapter 19, verses 21 through 22, he says, look at me, look at my hell on earth and now listen, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you like God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? In other words, friends, when you see somebody going through hell on earth, give them some compassion. But he doesn't just stop there, skip down, because we're going to come back to the middle in a second, verses 28 and 29. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him. And so Job's picture is that his friends are all discussing amongst themselves, hmm, what is the next wonderful convicting, rebuking thing we can say to Job? This is what Job says to them. I love this. Be afraid. Be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is judgment. Ah, this is a good moment. This is a good moment. This is a Galatians 6 moment. If, if any of you see a brother or sister who's overtaken a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, knowing that you could commit the same sin. I see a a moat in your eye. I see a small speck in your eye, um, and because I'm old now, let me put my bifocals on and get my flashlight on my phone. I don't know about you, is the flashlight on your phone like your best helper these days? Like I can see this. And meanwhile, I've got a 20-foot spruce log hanging out of my face. This is what Job says. You see somebody going through hell on earth, check yourself, because you're about to wreck yourself. That's what he's saying you want to talk about wrath you best strap up Bill, dad because it's coming and it's coming for you now lest you think that's just job wearing people out he's not saying anything different than what god's going to tell these fellows because if you were to fast forward to job 42 and i don't want to tell the end of the story but You know, it's hard to have a spoiler alert when a book's been around for a few thousand years. But in chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, God's going to say this. After the Lord had spoken words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job had. Can you imagine sitting there and all of a sudden, I mean like thunder, this is what you're hearing from God? The first time you hear God say your name, Stephen. Stephen. The first time I hear his name, this is what's coming. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. This is a sin offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You know what the implication there is? The implication is if Job... There's so much Christological language here. I so want to unpack it. We don't have time. But just wrap your mind around this. The one who was blameless and deserved no wrath has swallowed all wrath, and now unless he makes intercessors for the wicked, they'll die. That points to Jesus, folks. So what would have happened if Job had said, I'm not praying for you guys, not after what you put. Now, Job would, because Job's a blameless and righteous man. What if he wouldn't? What if there was no intercessor for them? Then God would strike these guys dead. For what? For being bad counselors. Oh, wow. God does get angry in the book of Job. His anger is toward the compassionless comforters, the arrogant condemners, and the worthless friends. Out of their fear and their self-righteous arrogance, they condemn the one that God loves. And Job says to, to Bildad specifically, you're going to answer for this. And so look up, worthless counselor. Look at the one that's going through hell on earth and look up to God. But then understand not just God's anger towards them, but you that are suffering, look up, suffering saint. On, the journey in, on our journey in Job now, and we're right at the, about the midpoint, we've seen Job think a lot about death and even ask God to kill him. But it's always been with a perspective of how this would end his suffering but also that he would never get vindication by it. Job was afraid in, in his process of going through grief because what you see in Job is actually the process, the uh, righteous person processing deep pain and grief. And so you see progression. So Job was like, kill me so I can be free from it. But wait, if you kill me, then there won't be vindication for my name. Uh, but you're killing me anyway, so just kill me. But it's always been about just a cessation. Now I'm going to read these verses in a moment because the, for the first time in Job, He thinks beyond death in a positive way. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me, Job wants a legacy. That's what he means when he says, write down my legacy when he says pen and paper, right? I, he says, oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And then Job quickly thinks, no, if all it was is written in a book, it'll get destroyed at some point. No, write it with iron on rock. That I want it preserved. Now, the irony of this moment is I want you to see that Job's prayer is being answered thousands of years later. Because we're reading it in a book, aren't we? We're reading this dear saint's vindication. And then he thinks, no, no, that wouldn't be enough. Bildad has been saying, you're going through hell on earth to prepare you for eternal hell. Job says, I'm going through hell on earth, but I know I'm not destined for eternal hell. Where is my destiny? Where is my destiny? And it drives him to realize something. If it was written in a book, it could be thrown away. If it was even inscribed on granite, water would wash it away. The only way Job could ever experience eternal vindication is if he had a Redeemer who lived. And the Redeemer here that he's referencing, um, it it has so many implications. It's a living Redeemer. It's a Redeemer's stance. It's a Redeemer he will see. The Redeemer in the Bible, in the Old Testament, one of the best examples of a living Redeemer, redeemer an illustration is ruth and boaz boaz who's the kinsman redeemer who comes and rescues the 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 weak and 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 the dispossessed and and a foreign woman and he rescues her and it's a picture of how jesus rescues gentiles with with boaz and ruth and she's actually becomes part of the lineage of jesus a kinsman redeemer was also a justice one so if someone killed a family member, the kinsman redeemer. It was his job to go hunt them down and exert justice. And so when Job says a redeemer, he's talking about someone who would care for the hurting, but also bring out justice. Tolkien stole from the Bible with the Battle of Helm's Deep. Jesus says this, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, and it's in the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about the end times, he's talking about suffering, and here's what sufferers do. Sufferers start searching for a Jesus. They find a medical Messiah. They find a moping Messiah. If I just withdraw into myself, then that'll make me feel better. If I could just self-medicate, that's going to make me feel better. Uh, If I could just get enough friends, that's going to make me feel better. Um, If I could just distract myself, that's going to make me feel better. If I could get a different job, if I could have different accolades, if I could just move away, that's going to make... Suffering people are so hungry for a Messiah... And so the temptation says, if they say, Look, here's the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you before him. So if they say to you, Look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as from the west, so will be coming the Son of Man. This is what Job says I look up from my hell on earth and I'm looking for my Jesus. Look to the east, for he's coming. Job says, I'm looking for a living redeemer. One who will rescue me out of his life. I'm looking for a redeemer who will stand for me. Paper might pass away. Granite could pass away. I need someone who will vindicate me over time. And then he says, I'm looking for a redeemer. I will see. He says, even if my body dies, verse 27, I will see him for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. That phrase there, my heart faints within me, is an exposition of worship. Because I'm now thinking in in my hell on earth of being with Jesus. Now there's something that Job doesn't know that we know about this Redeemer. You see, we know he's a Redeemer who actually knows hell. When Job says his Redeemer lives, he's contrasting it with his own death. He is thinking of God's eternality, which is His comfort. My suffering here will end, but God lives forever. But we live after Christ, so we know what Job doesn't know. We can dive deeper into comfort. We know that the reality of our Redeemer living is much more profound. We know, first of all, that our Redeemer Redeemer knows our afflictions because He came to earth and Jesus lived through hell on earth and Jesus went through hell for us. And so that when we're suffering, we can go to him. He's not annoyed, irritated, or frustrated by my sorrow. He understands it. But then furthermore, we know that our living Redeemer conquered death, hell, and the grave. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let your heart sing with Job that death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him. Let your heart sing with Job that your Redeemer lives so you can face tomorrow. The hell of Friday was real, but Sunday came. Weeping does endure for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Look to the east of suffering saint. For your Redeemer, He lives.